Hello and welcome back to China Clean Tech. Zhang Tai Chuangxin. My name is Marilyn Wei Wei Ma Li, and I'm joined by my co-hosts Andrew Chang, Zhang Tianlong. It's a pleasure to be here. Today we are so pleased to have as our guest Annie Liangzhou, co-founder and managing partner of Liang Capital Partners, a private multifamily office focused on wealth succession and impact for next-gen families. Annie is also founder and managing partner of Universal Pacific Advisors, a cross-border consulting company focused on financial advisory, strategy, government relations, and cultural exchange. Previously, she was director of external affairs of the U.S.-China Green Fund and still manages its corporate foundation, which engages in environmental education and action. Prior to founding her own companies, she worked at the World Policy Institute, Newberger Berman, formerly Lehman Brothers Asset Management, and MetLife Investments. And she is a member of the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations. Warm welcome to Annie. Good morning, and、uh, Marilyn and Andrew. Thank you very much for having me on your program. We're super excited to have you, and and so many things to talk、uh, with your experience working both in the U.S. and China.、Uh, maybe let's kick this off. Just getting to know you. Tell us a little bit about yourself and your personal connection with China and where you are now. Sure. Well, I was born in Beijing in the 1980s, and that was a time when China was going through a major transition, as we all know. China opened up diplomatic relations with the U.S., adopted a planned economy with capitalistic characteristics. I really witnessed the country's transformation from a largely agrarian、um, to manufacturing economy. Yeah, when I was young, the government was still passing out food coupons, which use we use for flour, rice, and Cooking oil, so it was very different back then.、Uh, I moved to the states when I was、uh, seven years old, but had the opportunity to visit China during the summer holidays, where I experienced the rapid growth there. Saw more factories and buildings and cars, and people's livelihoods improving as a result of a booming economy. However,、um, that really came at a great cost.、Uh, I lived in the U.S. for most of my life. Except for brief periods where I studied in Europe, began my career in financial services, worked as a research analyst at a think tank, and then became an entrepreneur.、Uh, I didn't return to live and work in China until I finished my master's programs. So after business school, decided to take an opportunity as、um, one of the founding partners of the U.S.-China Green Fund,、uh, as Marilyn introduced earlier. The first market-driven private equity fund in China that was solely investing in green companies, specifically climate technologies and clean energy. So, as a director of external affairs, I was responsible for liaising with central and regional governments,、uh, environmental nonprofits, media, and other stakeholders in civil society to discuss ways of incorporating green and climate finance into their strategies and collaborations. Now,、uh, even as I've left my position at the Green Fund, I continue to run our corporate foundation,、uh, which primarily does work in environmental education and promotes individual actions towards、um, environmentalism. So we work with schools, corporate offices, and residential communities to teach people about environmental awareness, recycling, and ecological protection. It's been、uh, quite the journey, and I'm excited about all the climate and environmental work that's、um, happening in China, which is very much driven by top-down policies, but it's trickling down to business and, and society. So 
I've been excited to kind of help raise awareness about the concept of environmentalism and how industry and civil society work together to address climate challenges. What is your take now on obviously China's you know commitment to carbon neutrality, right? Peaking 2030 and then carbon neutrality by 2060. I mean, this is this is this is massive commitment. Um, and as you said, it's very much top down. What is the U.S.-China role in in this? And based off your experience of of U.S.-China Green Fund in 2017, that time was also a very tense time during the trade war during the Trump administration. So, what are some of the learnings uh, from that experience, and can we take away and, and be applied to what's happening now? Uh, absolutely, Andrew. I'd say that. First of all, um, we're seeing uh, major challenges right now between the U.S. and China, but both countries have to um, converge in terms of their climate goals. So there are um, a lot of opportunities in the clean energy and technology transition to, um, as you alluded to, um, and and to paint a more comprehensive picture. China currently accounts for about 27 percent of global CO2 emissions followed by the U.S. at just less less than half of China. And given that um, China wants to reach peak emissions by 2030 and carbon neutrality by 2060, I think we can estimate that there's going to be about $16 trillion in clean tech infrastructure investments and and 40 uh, 40 million new jobs, according to a recent study by Goldman Sachs. So I think that there are a lot of opportunities for the two countries to collaborate in order to meet these increasing demands. And uh, also, as we're seeing other trends in a a growing world population, especially in uh, need for power, um, more industry, as well as food and, and mobility and transportation, I think that there are areas where both governments can collaborate and invest in. these several sectors. And this includes um, the renewable energy transition to ramp up not only um, wind, solar, nuclear, and hydro, but continue to develop capabilities in clean hydrogen. There's opportunities in carbon capture and sequestration, CCS, uh, which is a critical technology um, with a wide range of industrial applications. And also, we're seeing that there's uh, electrification of the transportation sector and, of course, development of the electric vehicle infrastructure, batteries, storage. Also, I think there's a great opportunity in uh, regenerative agriculture, which is changing the way we grow produce, uh, replenish soil, the change of land and water usage, how we raise livestock. And finally, I think um, building global carbon exchanges um, and standardized emissions trading schemes. I think these are all areas of collaboration between the two countries. And of course, we faced a lot of challenges in terms of the bilateral relationship. And so in the next um, few years, I believe that it's critical for the two countries to work together to find common ground in terms of the climate debate. Definitely, definitely. I mean, it's probably the most important thing the next, oh, well, you know, the, the work that we're doing now in, in the next two decades, climate, U.S.-China relations is, is, is a key part of that. Just speaking on agriculture, I know that the U.S.-China Green Fund made some investments in some agriculture companies or startups. Could you speak on that? 
So the U.S.-China Green Fund has invested in a number of companies that have uh, broad applications to uh, addressing um, environmental challenges in China. So one of the companies we invested in is called uh, Huitongda, and it's actually a channel to market for a lot of the Western ag tech companies. So uh, essentially, Huitongda was a large network of mom and pop shops that were selling not only commodities, but also sustainable products and agricultural products and agricultural technologies uh, to the rural population. So this company encompassed 20 provinces, about 17,000 towns, and was serving about um, 70 million plus uh, rural families. And this company actually generated about uh, 300 billion of annual uh, GMB. And so one of the areas between uh, uh, one of the areas of collaboration between uh, Huitongda and the West was that we were looking at um, agricultural technologies from the U.S., Canada, Europe, um, and Israel that could be applied to this platform and procured, um, and so that these earlier stage technologies, for example, um, soil remediation or other types of computing software to measure kind of um, soil health could be used in the rural context in China as uh, China's policies were supporting this policy of poverty alleviation, which really um, helps to kind of lift people out of poverty and also to help to address some of the economic opportunities in rural China. Thanks for that description, and, and great to see such a successful startup come from that fund. Um, and just going back to a little bit about you, you know, you you come from a family that also has worked in the environmental space. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? So I would have to say that my original motivation for going into the field of impact investing and environmental awareness um, was very personal. Um, I grew up with a grandfather who was adamant about our environmental footprint at home, and he was the most environmental person I knew. He would use the water he used for cooking to brush his teeth and flush the toilet. Um, He was leaving no valuable resources wasted. He always preferred his bicycle to riding cars, uh, so much that he'd fallen on the streets of Beijing and had to go to the hospital twice. And then he went on to found China's first environmental NGO, Friends of Nature, in 1994 to promote environmental awareness and education, as well as ecological protection. And he was instrumental in the preservation of the Tibetan antelope and stub-nosed monkey in the south of China. So this deeply inspired me to live an environmentally conscious life. Every day, I'm tracking my um, impact from the reduction of single-use plastics and packaging to um, being conscious of my water and electricity usage to using public transportation. And then also I've been um, plant-based for the past 15 years. So this not only helped me to understand the importance of um, personal environmental action, but also influence friends and family to be more conscious as well. That's awesome, Annie. I I can say that Maryland doesn't she rides her bike, doesn't own a car, and lives on a plant-based diet as well, right, Marilyn? That's right. 
I love that. And now you more, Andrew, right? More and more? Yes. I've actually, I've I've reduced my consumption of meat to three times a week. And uh, yeah, it is progress. It is progress. I do ride my bike and I do have an electric car. So definitely and 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 into that and not only that Annie I think you had talked about sort of this this how can we get more people in the sort of climate movement right and and mm-hmm. we talked I think you know Marilyn has a couple of questions regarding more of the the financial institutions and from the the finance side but you know I think what's interesting is how we can empower everyday people and everyday citizens to contribute and be part of this climate movement and a lot of that comes down to education and it comes to comes down to access to this information. And so some of the work that you're doing with the trainings, nonprofit organizations that you have had built over the years really sort of highlights that need. And so that's really exciting. Marilyn, over to you. Thanks, Andrew. So Annie, this has been a fascinating overview of your background and your motivations. Tell us more about your current role, about Liang Capital Partners. What kind of clients do you serve and how do you incorporate climate impact? Sure, Marilyn. So Liang Capital Partners is a a private multifamily office focused on impact and ESG investing. As I mentioned earlier as well, um, we do a little bit of uh, cultural heritage preservation and women's empowerment. My two partners are both strong women who are at the forefront of impact and next-gen wealth transfer. So in China, we advise local governments and companies on their carbon neutrality and energy transition, particularly on the growing carbon trading market. In 2013, the carbon trading scheme was launched in seven pilot zones in China. That was in uh, Beijing, Shanghai, Shenzhen, Tianjin, uh, Chongqing, Guangdong, and Hubei provinces, um, and only for the power generation sector. Uh, So China uh, announced this year that it will nationalize the carbon market. And but after a series of delays, finally came into effect in July. So now it's overseen by the Ministry of Ecology and Environment, MEE, and then also approved by the NDRC, the National Development and Reform Commission. So we're excited about this nationalized cap and trade scheme, which will be implemented on a much larger scale than in the past. And, and, you know, this will also apply to seven other major um, carbon emitting industries, including um, chemicals, construction, steel, and aviation. So China's scheme also differs from other countries in the fact that it it focuses on reducing the intensity of emissions. So even even though the carbon allowance is twice as much as uh, that of the EU right now, even if absolute emissions increase with energy output, uh, as long as each company is reducing the volume of emissions per unit of energy output, it's still allowed under the scheme, but uh, will be restricted over over time based on the type of company. Um, and so we, the current price of carbon is around 51 RMB, uh, about $7.90 uh, per ton. We've already seen an increase in the carbon price since um, the emissions trading scheme was nationalized, but we we think that there's tremendous potential for carbon prices to increase and uh, as well as arbitrage opportunities. 
So we are advising local governments on their carbon trading planning uh, and trade strategy, as well as monitoring um, trading of CCER or the China Certified Emissions Reduction Assets, uh, including renewable energy infrastructure that can also be traded to offset emissions. So there's a lot happening, um, and my China team is observing this market very closely. On the U.S. side, uh, I focus primarily on our impact investing, which are investments uh, made into companies and funds with the intention to generate a social and environmental impact alongside a financial return. So we're also serving other families in our network of investors on their education and philanthropic endeavors, a lot of which is now focused on impact. So uh, while most of our assets are invested in managed accounts, we have a, a, a pool of funds which we're using to invest in early stage disruptive technologies. So as mentioned earlier, through my experience at the US-China Green Fund, I've accumulated a Rolodex of clean tech companies in different sectors, uh, including energy, mobility, and uh, food and ag tech. And we're seeking to not only invest in those companies, but also play a strategic role in helping to guide them through their growth and entry into other markets, and specifically China. So one of the areas where Land Capital Partners adds value is helping our investors understand the importance of allocating assets towards ESG and impact solutions. So I'd like to point out the, the spectrum of allocation that we use to, to kind of assess our, our clients' goals. Um, you see the movement of capital. Uh, at one end, you have kind of um, the traditional and, and finance-only kind of um, Goals. And then the, on the other end of the spectrum, you see more of the philanthropy type of giving or, or capital at allocation and um, driving at only an impact. And so along the spectrum, you're kind of seeing, um, you know, from traditional asset allocation towards more responsible um, investments or, and then moving towards uh, sustainable uh, thematic and then also impact first. So now we're seeing much more capital that's being allocated towards the thematic, which is kind of high impact solutions and then impact first, where um, sometimes investors are willing to forego some of the returns uh, for impact. And so we're seeing a lot of um, movement there and it's a strong growing trend, uh, which I believe is really due to the convergence of mindsets and how other family offices or high net worth investors are becoming more comfortable with uh, incorporating impact strategies into their asset allocation goals. And granted, our, our team will be assessing the investments impact measurement and management and risks where we use um, different tools to evaluate the company's social and environmental impact, uh, making sure that, that they're not impact washing. So, and this includes the venture stage companies we, we invest in, as well as more established uh, public market vehicles or products um, that we help them to evaluate as well. Thank you, Annie. I appreciate the landscape you provided in terms of the spectrum from 
impact only to finance only and how really we're seeing the emergence of impact and financial return alongside each other for that common goal of sustainability. So how can wealth managers better serve their clients when it comes to climate? So I believe that um, one of the key driving factors in green and climate financing is investor pressure. Well, we're seeing the likes of uh, BlackRock or Fidelity or Vanguard speaking about ESG and impact investing and major investment banks like Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley and, and asset managers are offering more impact-driven investment vehicles and services because of this demand. So increasingly, asset managers are divesting from fossil fuels, chemicals, and heavily polluting industries. I think it's exciting to see that impact investing on a global scale has grown to um, you know, more than 50% since three or four years ago. And with the amount of capital committed towards green and climate financing, this will be a continuing trend as wealth managers um, educate themselves on areas of ESG and, and climate to be able to better serve their clients. Uh, and specifically, I think asset managers should apply um, a multidimensional approach to their decision-making process, considering impact objectives, uh, risks, um, alongside traditional advisory on financial returns and liquidity. So through this, I think asset managers can more effectively achieve the intended impact and financial performance. So we're seeing that you know asset allocation and the movement of capital towards more sustainable businesses um, will, I think, also force conventional businesses to incorporate more sustainability metrics into their models uh, including their operations, logistics, and supply chains. And I find that most wealth management platforms now have specific groups dedicated towards impact, of which a large portion consists of climate-related strategies and products. If you are a retail investor in China or the U.S., do you have any insights or advice for how the average retail investor can access climate deals for either of those markets? Right now, I think, you know, depending on uh, what, which retail, uh, the, these retail investors, um, which uh, investment platforms they're on, I think that there's uh, increasing um, offerings of climate-related uh, strategies for them. So I think most retail investors, they would tend to invest in more public sector offerings. So there are a number of, let's say, um, exchange-traded funds, ETFs, and other types of strategies that are specific towards social um, or environmentally responsible investing, uh, you know, but they're more geared towards uh, public markets. For the private markets, it's much more difficult to source these types of deals for retail investors. And, and that's kind of um, an area where I think there, there is a gap. So in the future, there will be more, uh, I think, venture kind of uh, strategies that are offered by uh, asset management platforms where retail investors can also uh, have access to earlier stage or, or, you know, kind of private deals uh, where there is 
uh, more targeted um, uh, impact approaches from from these uh, companies. Right. Yes, I can think of a few in the U.S. that are that are coming up, including Cap Table Coalition for credit investors, but retail investors for venture capital deals that sometimes include a climate focus, but across the board. And then there are other, there's a small business bond exchange that has been launched to support small businesses issuing bonds that the average retail investor can then invest in, which is pretty awesome to see. And also sometimes that can be climate linked, but not exclusively be interesting to see what might be possible in the Chinese context as we watch this space. So thank you for that. Anything else you want to tell our audience? Sure. I guess maybe I can talk a little bit about some of the impact sectors that we're looking at, which I think will drive the future of kind of the the climate or green investing space in the energy efficiency space. Um, When I was with the U.S. China Green Fund, we observed trends in in, uh, smart cities and how um, green buildings will be where people choose to to live and work in the future. So, you know, buildings will be more energy efficient. Um, They'll use more energy saving equipment and materials and use smart meters to measure the amount of energy and water usage. And then also there needs to be uh, more affordable access to renewable energy for power generation. Another area that we're excited about is the electric vehicle infrastructure. So um, targeting kind of batteries, uh, storage, and related technologies such as micromobility, and then also um, clean hydrogen. Uh, I think that's going to be the the future. We're also closely monitoring the the food and ag tech sectors, uh, as well as sustainable materials used um, in the retail and apparel industry. So for my family office, we're tracking a lot of these new functional ingredients that are being developed from not only plants, but fungi, algae, and microorganisms, especially as we're seeing a 20% plus increase in the consumption of uh, non-animal food products, including alternative proteins, milk and dairy, and seafood. And in addition... um, there are ag tech companies that are addressing the most critical issues of land degradation and soil remediation. They're introducing regenerative farming techniques um, and technologies, uh, replenishing nutrients into the soil. And um, I'm personally a big fan of vertical farming uh, in areas of land and water stress. And in the retail and apparel industry, we're also looking at opportunities for the development of new materials. So uh, organic and sustainable, and, and they're rethinking the way they create their products through using um, eco-friendly dyes, micro-leather, um, which are made from mushrooms, cactus, and recycled plastic. And we're also making sure that they're putting pressure on their supply chains to meet sustainability standards. So these are areas that we are very uh, excited about. Great. Mushroom leather. Did I hear that correctly? Yes. That sounds great. I like that. (laughs) Yeah. There's a cool company called um, Michael Technologies, which I'll I'll look it up and, and send to you. I think that's pretty exciting. Yes. I, I did some work on bamboo textiles a while ago some research actually in China 
to use that in, in some, some of the university research I was doing on manufacturing sustainable textiles. So it's fascinating to hear about those alternatives and I hope they, they do scale and help us uh, keep the carbon footprint in line with the carrying capacity of the earth. So that's awesome. All right, so Marilyn, it's my turn to ask you. Really inspiring interview with Annie, such a rich background, really extensive experience in the US-China world. And now in New York, it just seems like she has a lot to offer in terms of what we need now, which is one, sort of the, the, the experience managing the US-China relations, but two, she seems to have a very strong grasp of really up-and-coming exciting technologies, including EV infrastructure, new materials. I like her, what she said about functional ingredients, which was really uh, a nice way of putting it, recycled plastics and ag tech. Yes, I think really she helped broaden the idea of climate investing, especially investing in the private markets, startups, even mature companies beyond your energy system. And I think that's super important, really. So looking for those carbon dioxide reduction areas across the real economy. And I think that's really exciting. And also just the private wealth of sort of network that she she is in and getting people to co-invest with her on on um, climate climate solutions. I think that's also a really powerful segment. Right. So that whole co-investment space also uh, be interested in tracking it more. And, and of course, for any one company that's raising capital, there, won't, there likely won't be a single investor, there'll be multiple. And, and so that co-investment ecosystem is critical for, from the company perspective, from the investee perspective, but also just in terms of being successful and having a broader network of investors who can help you and coach you and support beyond just the, the check they write. If you have a product out there today, of course, you would hope that it could be sold in both the Chinese and the U.S. markets. 